Sari. Hi, Jen. How are you? Well, I'm feeling a little burnt out because I just did all our prep for Anne Helen Peterson, and she has some really enlightening things to say about burnout. How about you? I mean, you had to do all that research. What do you? I feel burnt out from the research. I feel burnt out from life right now in this pandemic. I feel burnt out from thinking about research in this life in this pandemic. <laughs> um, before we talk to Anne, I want to kind of fill everyone else in on what she does. Yeah. What we've been talking about is that Anne Helen Peterson is the author of this new book called Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. And it was actually based on an article by a similar name that came out in 2019. I read it then. There were all these think pieces about it. It got a lot of uh, traction on the internet uh, just about how millennials are on this life cycle of work, 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 no leisure time, and that it's not just an issue that we can address ourselves. It's actually a systemic issue. She wrote that when she was a senior culture writer at BuzzFeed, mm -hmm. and now she's actually a writer for her own newsletter called Culture Study, where she writes about a lot of the same issues, work-life balance, navigating the world as a working woman, um, and especially as of late, she's been talking about how the pandemic is affecting all of us. So I'm very interested to hear what she thinks is going to happen post-pandemic um, with burnout culture and with working culture in general. It puts things in a different kind of context, I think. Some people think if I answer all my emails or if I'm up to date on all social media, they're going to get some kind of star or a prize mm -hmm. or something that's going to... Uh, the reward is usually just more work, though. Pie eating contest, reward is more <laughs> pie. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know you, you are one of the most hardworking, stack their schedule, treadmill people I know, so... I can imagine that that made you feel some type of way. Yeah. Well, what about you? I mean, I feel like you have definitely a ton. Definitely feel it. Yeah, definitely feel it. You have a lot of demands <laughs> on you, and you're yeah. very much a perfectionist. And, and a millennial. And we want our work to be good, right? So... Welcome to Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. And Helen Peterson, thanks for being with us. Welcome. It is my total pleasure to be here today. So you uh, wrote uh, this book, um, Can't Even, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation. Define burnout for us, because I found your definition illuminating and surprising. To me, burnout is that feeling when you hit the wall, and then you scale the wall, and then you keep going. So it's not a point of collapse, necessarily. It is a point of of stasis, <laughs> where you just kind of live with this background of exhaustion, and also of just like of struggling to find your footing in any way. That's why I found it surprising, because people would say, oh, I'm so burnt out, or ask me, aren't you burnt out? And I would say, no, I'm not, because I keep going. Mm -hmm. So I can't be burnt out, because burnt out means you stop. But what was really illuminating about your definition is, no, burnout means it's never enough. You're like perpetually moving and trying to do more things. Yeah. And that's, you know, people would ask me to, they'd say like, you're, you, are you burnt out? And it would be offensive almost, right? Because I would totally be like... It's offensive because it's like, it's like saying yeah. I can't handle it. Yes. Right? Yes, exactly. It, and what they're really trying to say is like, you're doing really good and hard work and I want you to get some rest. I, I think it's oftentimes an expression of care. But for people who are high achieving and have, have managed to stay high achieving for a long time, I think it is often received, and I certainly received it this way, 
as an insult. And so you kind of, you push back at it, which is what I did and I talk about in the beginning of the book is yeah. really being like, how dare you? I got a massage and a facial. I'm not burnt <laughs> out. I'm drinking herbal tea as we speak. <laughs> I'm right. doing all and sorts of self-care. <laughs> and like all of those things. And I also think we had this real um, understanding that burnout was something that happened to people in traditionally high-stress work environments. So to people who were, you know, foreign aid workers or I actually thought political reporters. I'm like, oh, I can see how a political reporter on the trail would get burnt out because they are just going nonstop and there's no time for for exercise or quote unquote self-care. But to me, I was just like, oh, I'm just doing my job. I'm just doing all the things I got to do. And and all of those things just accumulated into this like background buzz of exhaustion. So what led you to write about it? Like what that sort of moment was where people kept telling you, aren't you burnt out and you're pushing back on it, but you did have a realization eventually. So my response to Trump's election was, what can I do? <laughs> I think a lot of people's was, right? And like yes. some people, some people joined Indivisible, some people were protesting in other ways, some people just got really mad online, you know, all sorts of things. But like I, as a reporter at that time, I was at BuzzFeed News, you know, I couldn't participate in protests. I couldn't donate to these campaigns. Like I couldn't do those sorts of things. What right. I could do was what I thought of as like reporting the crap out of this stuff, right? And trying yeah. to to highlight uh, movements that I thought were doing the work and also like, you know, I'm from Idaho and had reported on a lot of the, the undercurrents of Trumpism. So, okay, trying to understand it, not in mm -hmm. the like traditional dorky or I don't know, the the facile way that sometimes it can can manifest, but to, to really try to get at the heart of some of what was going on, right? Mm -hmm. So I, at the time of Trump's election, was living in New York, and I came out to Montana to cover the special election after Zinke was appointed to Secretary of the Interior, and the reporting felt so amazing. It felt natural. I felt so happy. Mm. And so much of that had to do with, it was the first time in my life that reporting had felt easy because I was in Montana. You can say to people like, oh, I'm from Idaho. Talk to me. <laughs> right? I'm from Idaho. Um, yeah. And, that's a and, good calling card there. Yep. And not and I'm people from New York will. City. <laughs> yeah. And but I knew still, how to people blend in. Montana in. will talk to you no matter where yeah, you're from. People in Montana will talk to you, but they will talk to you with a little bit of an arm's length. And it depends on what you're wearing. Uh, and then from there, it was kind of a sprint. Like I convinced my editors at BuzzFeed to let me move to Montana, move to Missoula, found myself working as much, if not more than ever. You know, I cut out the commute in my life and I just worked more. Traveling yeah. a ton, covering different races. I, I did a bunch of reporting on the Beto race for midterms. Did a bunch of reporting on voter suppression in Navajo Nation. A again, leading up to the midterms. And then in between that, I was also doing reporting like, oh, I was in Austin for a book event and the mass shooting in Sutherland Springs happened. So I got called to go report there. And there's just not a lot of um, recovery built into reporting schedule. And I think a lot of reporters, like many other fields, one of the ways that you evidence yourself as a really good, strong worker is showing that you don't need rest. <laughs> totally. So after the midterms, I was writing things and my editors didn't really like them. And then that upset me. And then uh, just came to a head with my editor saying to me, like, I think you're burnt out. And... 
I said, oh, I, how dare you again? Like, I, can't, yeah, right. I, I took off two days before Thanksgiving and also got a massage and, and a facial. And I think that, like, my way of <laughs> trying to figure out what's going on with me is I always try to analyze it. That You know, that's my background as an academic and also write about it. So that was the way that I ended up writing this essay that was published in BuzzFeed in 2019 that eventually ended up becoming the book. I wrote a book that came out this year, A Declaration of Independence from a Man's World. The underlying thesis of that book is that we just don't value women the same way as we do men. And that is reflected in everything from the way we pay childcare workers to the way actresses in Hollywood are paid or the fact that the women's soccer team has to sue to get paid what they're worth, right? Mm -hmm. It's just like, that's like the fundamental, like built in all of the power structures are built onto that, that premise that we don't value women the same way as men. Explain your thesis that the burnout problem is structural. So I think that burnout is fundamentally connected to precarity. Right? And by precarity, like that's just a word to describe lack of stability, primarily financial, but then from that financial instability, you get psychological instability, familial instability, emotional instability. And I think that, you know, there's all these other things that intersect with that, right? So discrimination contributes to burnout. Like structurally, if you are black, like there is financial precarity built into the black experience for all of these different historical reasons in America. And then that intersects with your daily experience of discrimination and microaggressions and having your your labor valued less, having fewer opportunities open to you. And like just gaslighting in general when people are like, I, there is no racism or like right, right. Donald or, Trump yeah. has done the most for black people of any president, you know, statements <laughs> like that. Yes. So when you're trying to find your footing all the time, you never arrive at that place of stability that can lead to that feeling that like, oh, I just have to be hustling all the time. Hustling all the time. Yes. And so, again, I think people who are not white and middle class have experienced this for a really long time. Right. The shift that happened, I think, with millennials is it became a far more widespread, e.g. white middle class as well, <laughs> experience, right? right? Uh -huh. It became more generational instead of a certain type of person within the generation. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. What's interesting to me, though, is that, you know, I am Gen X, right? Mm -hmm. I just turned, I turned 54 on the 15th. But like, I relate to all of this, mm -hmm. except it was my expectation that that's how it was supposed to be. <laughs> I just, you know, thought you kept hustling, but eventually you got somewhere. Right. So it strikes me that there's like two big differences with millennials, or at least, you know, as you write as a millennial, one, you understand it's never going to end. The treadmill never takes you anywhere. It just keeps running unless right. you get off. And that we should value ourselves, our lives, people outside of their careers. Well, I think there are some millennials who had a more Gen X perspective in terms of like, just like the system is maybe broken and like, I just have to keep working until I can fix it. And, you know, I'm yeah. a cusp. Mm -hmm. I am a, the oldest millennial you can possibly be, an elder millennial, I prefer, <laughs> born in 1981. Uh, and I think, though, that I relate to a lot of more kind of classically millennial ideas because of the fact that my real entrance into the job market was delayed by being in grad school for six years. Um, so uh -huh. I graduated from college, was a nanny in Seattle for two years, and then went to grad school for six years and then entered the workplace, as, as it were. So I line up a lot more with kind of 
the classic set of millennials whose experience of the job market was so colored by what happened with the recession over the course of the late 2000s and early 2010s. Yeah, right. I think, though, that millennials, so much of our mindset, especially like bourgeois, so much was inherited from our boomer parents. Because our boomer parents really did have some of these ideas of like, if you work hard, things will work out okay, especially if you're (laughs) white, right? You're like, sure, yeah. you know, I worked hard, things worked out okay. And a lot Mm -hmm. of the, the structural advantages that were afforded white middle-class people in America during that generation, like there there was evidence, like the American dream did work to some extent for those people. Capitalism did work to some extent for those people. And I think sometimes, you know, and I talk about this in the book that we forget that like part of the reason capitalism did work for this swath of people during this time was because it was regulated, <laughs> right? Like there were things in place that made it so that labor could be stronger, so that corporations had less power, so that it wasn't all about shareholder value all the time and like always yep. increasing stock price a year after year after year. But if you have grown up in a time when capitalism does work for people and capitalism did work for you and your family, it's easy to pass that understanding down to your kids that like, yeah, if you work hard enough too, white middle class person, capitalism mm-hmm. could work for you. Or even, you know, if you are surrounded by people like that and maybe if your parents are first generation immigrants or if they didn't manage to work their way from you know working class to the middle class over the course of like the 60s and 70s, you could still look around you and say, well, these other people who worked really hard, maybe if I just go to college, it'll work out for me. If I can just take that one step, if I can get that degree, that's the thing that's going to make capitalism work for me. And, you know, we're having these conversations right now, like as you and I are speaking all around us about like, is Joe Biden going to forgive student debt? And I think sometimes like there's just so little awareness of like why (laughs) so many millennials took out so much student debt. It was because we thought college was the way. You know, some of these ideas about like it's called the education gospel started in the the 1950s with this idea that like, oh, the way that America could compete with Russia is if we just have more people go to college, especially more scientists and that sort of thing. But at the time, there was robust federal funding for for college for like I was talking to my friend's dad last night and he's he went to the University of Washington. and He was like, yeah, my tuition was I think he said like six hundred dollars a semester. Like that was a time when you could work your way. Yeah, yeah, like a state, particularly a state school, you could do that. Yeah, yeah. I remember my, my sister went to Cal State University, you know, and it was like fifteen hundred dollars a semester or something right. like that. Yeah, in the eighties. Yeah. So you could take on yeah. minimal amounts of student debt, and even private college was not that much more expensive at the time. So if you grow up in that idea, if your parents are espousing that idea, and it trickles down to you as a millennial, and you right. look at college, and you're like, yes, of course. College at any cost, the best college at any cost. Yeah. I, including where I went to school, which is uh, Whitman College, a small liberal arts college in Washington State. I loved mm-hmm. it. It mm-hmm. is an incredibly special place. Is it now worth $60,000 a year? <laughs> yeah, $60,000 a year. Well, and it, it just, it does seem to me that it's like an exorbitant and constantly rising cost for a ticket to a game that doesn't exist yes. anymore. Yes. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around and we'll be right back with Anne Helen Peterson. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We're here with Anne Helen Peterson. 
you talked before about how capitalism had rules and it was regulated and there was like sort of a maze, but you could get through it because there were structures that were like defining spaces and keeping things in check. And then it's sort of like the internet just removed all of the structure from the economy and the workplace. And so now you can work all the time. You can work anywhere you can be. And you talk about how being a freelancer, and that particularly falls on women, that that's like the freelance work is part of a structural problem that causes burnout, particularly for women, how structurally this thing right now is built for burnout. Yeah. I mean, I think freelancing is like the freedom to work all the time, right? (laughs) So a lot of the shifts that happen with companies and encouraging them to take on temporary Mm. and gig and permalancer labor, like this happened over the course of, of several decades as companies tried to figure out how can we be lean which means how can we have yeah. fewer full-time employees that we have to provide with any sort of stability or benefit or even care about them as whole people, right, as whole workers. And so what was advised to these companies, oftentimes by the consultants that were brought in to lean them, was to take on what was called flexible labor. And what that means is that the labor itself, the workers, have to be flexible in terms of, well, you can't demand much and you can't, you won't be considered a full-time employee and you won't have stability. And so I think, you know, over the course of the recession, there were so many jobs that were lost over the course of the Great Recession. And so many of the jobs that were added back are these sorts of gig, permalancer, freelance, contract workers, these jobs. Sometimes they mean absolutely no insurance. Right? The stereotypical one is like you are someone who is delivering for DoorDash or something like that. And you're just like wedging in time. Um, between other jobs and like it's just really and actually a gig and sometimes it's something more like the fact that a lot of these tech companies like amazon apple that sort of thing like they are taking through subcontractors they are hiring people at lower salaries less benefits and no accountability really to like the, the actual employees so there's like this layer there's another company that is hiring them so if there mm-hmm. is a sexual assault claim it's not Amazon's responsibility. It is whatever the right. subcontractor is who is em- employing these people. And do you think, you guys, you wrote, you said that ultimately temp work was so thoroughly feminized and effectively trivialized that little thought was paid to whether or not it was exploitative. Yeah. Is that what you mean about for temp work to be feminized? So the beginning of temp work was really in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, there were these temp agencies yeah. where Kelly girl. Yeah, the Kelly girl, where they would, uh, like, part of the way that they sold this workforce to companies is they were like, do you want a worker who has no sick days? Like, basically, you just do not have to care for them as if they were a worker. They're like, here's this army of housewives who just want some pin money, which was false. But, like, that's how they represented them, was that you do not have to care for them as if this is their primary job. It's echoed in the way that Uber talks about its drivers that Airbnb talks mm-hmm. about. It's renter, you know, people who, oh, they're just doing it on the side. We don't need to think of them as workers because they are just trying to do this on the side as supplemental income. When in fact, a lot of gig workers are doing multiple gig jobs, right? Or they're working a part-time job and then they're trying to like stuff in a couple of hours driving Uber just to be able to cover a supplemental bill that they struggle with every month.
I'm super interested to hear about your Substack. It's a blog, right? So Substack, yeah, Substacks are like, they're interesting because they function as newsletters, right, that come to your inbox. Right. And then also they live online as a blog. And then what? what is your newsletter called? It's called Culture Study. And, you know, part of the reason that I moved to Substack, it wasn't that, like, I was going to get laid off at BuzzFeed, is that I was sick of every month changing whether or not, like, the prognosis for digital media was death in six months. And part of this, I think, is I come to digital media from the unique, <laughs> the ne- unique path of going through academia and finishing a PhD yeah. and trying to get an academic job and having one briefly, <laughs> and then dealing with that precarity and that overwhelming, like not knowing if, if this path is just going to like stop in front of me and then I'm gonna have to jump onto another path. So I had that and then I got very lucky um, that the moment that I was jumping ship from academia was one in which digital media was expanding and kind of throwing stuff at the wall. They're like, sure, let's hire this person who writes about celebrities who has a PhD. That would not happen right now. So I think that my tolerance for that sort of instability had just come to an end. And so for me, looking at Substack, which some people would be like, oh, well, isn't a newsletter (laughs) where you are dependent upon, uh, you know, individuals subscribing to your newsletter and paying money, isn't that just as precarious? And in some ways, yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But I had built my newsletter subscriber base to, I think I was at 17,000. And this was just me doing it every other weekend or so. And none of these people were paid. And, you know, I had... Uh, a really high open rate, which is like how many people open it when it comes into their, their like, inbox. Naturally, I have a high open <laughs> I know, rate. it just means that I had a high <laughs> loyalty rate. And also I yeah. write books, right? And I knew that that was something I could continue. And I had the right. double privilege of being a partner with someone who works for the New York Times, which is like if there is any stable publication, yeah. it is the New York Times. And I can get on his health insurance. So like there was that stability that I was jumping to, but like it's rarefied. It is it is not a solution to the problems that ail the industry. But have you been able to prevent the burnout? You know, when you have you changed your life yourself after you wrote this book? No. Anne? I mean, I, so that, I mean. Anne, who just told me, and by the way, my next book is. Well, so, okay, there are two things happening. Or my fifth? In the book, I say that, like, you cannot cure your personal burnout until we as a society attempt to address burnout, right? Cop out. That's a cop out. I mean, I teased you, but you're right to say that until until the structural problems are resolved, you're not going to solve your personal problem. But then there also is, certainly like for me, is the, you know, almost addictive nature of like, well, what's yep. next? What's next? What what more should I try to accomplish? Yep. I wrote, Dear Madam President, it was the number one New York Times bestseller. I was like, let's turn it into a TV series. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I spent a year, you know, yep. going down that rabbit hole, which... It is a rabbit yep. hole. Um, and then I wrote another book and, you know, and now I'm doing this podcast and it's like, you know, to appreciate like good work that you do and be pleased with it and take the time to do good work and not spread yourself thin, right? That's like the thing yeah. that I also have to push against, like saying no yeah. um, to a new opportunity because like, will that opportunity come ever come around again? Yep. I talked to Sarah Cooper, you know, mm-hmm. Sarah Cooper. Yeah, yeah. Okay. We got her on a day where she was feeling really down mm-hmm. because she was so sure that her opportunity was just going to disappear. Yeah. 
which is so ridiculous right. because she became famous during a pandemic at her home with like <laughs> using nothing more than her phone. Right. You know, like Sarah Cooper, here's what we know about you. You're going to figure out a way to be successful. Right. Well, and it, so that idea that you have to work all the time, that is my coping strategy for that precarity that I have felt since I basically sure. entered the workplace. Yeah. And since right. I entered grad school and was like, okay, well, grad school doesn't lead to employment, but some people get employment. So if I just work all the time, maybe that can solve that instability problem. And so that's right. what so many of us have adopted as a coping strategy. And so I think like always being frantic to not miss an opportunity, that is a symptom of overarching precarity, of overarching instability. And I think for me too, it's it's like... I think as women, it's really hard for us to say no. I think we're always yeah. scared of being labeled difficult or... Um, uh, or to dry up. Uh-huh. Either one of those uh-huh. things. Yeah. I, you know, the best advice that I have received about handling <laughs> your email or your requests and, like, not... And being scared of, like, being <laughs> labeled a bitch is that you create yeah. an email account. And I know <laughs> that is for your assistant... And it's just like an assistant that says no to people for you. So you can still email from this email. Wait, wait, is the assistant made up? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But your assistant, your assistant just like gives hard no's, protects your, your time, really respects you, like has no problem, like bargaining for more money, (laughs) you know? This is genius. (laughs) But now that I've told you, I can't do it. <laughs> or if I do ever get an assistant in some fantasy space, people are going to be like, that's not your assistant. Right. That is your your strong boundary enforcing email account. Wow. Yeah. Makes a lot of, yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Super smart. <laughs> We're going to take another quick break, but just something about her. We'll be right back. We're back with Anne Helen Peterson. A lot of women look at the stats around uh, what's happened to women in the workplace during COVID and get very discouraged because women are like either stop seeking work, not working yeah. because childcare is too uh, much of a burden or it's, and or it's too expensive. Um, some of the stats you cited in an article you wrote for MSNBC. Over September, about 865,000 women dropped out of the workforce compared to 216,000 men. Unemployment rate is at 12% for Black women, 10.5% for Latino women, and 7.3% for white women. But, yeah, I try to be optimistic. So I was like, okay, because the problem, it's helped bring the problem into more, even more stark relief that we don't value women's work the same as men through COVID, you know, just by unearthing these problems, that sheds a light on it and you could create better policies or that businesses might look to improve their own policies because it's a competitive workplace for good employees. Do you think it's a competitive workplace right now? This is something that I'm really thinking about, right? Because I think that some places are like, oh, good labor is tried to ha- hard to find. But like, I don't think that most employees feel like they can ask for much from, you know, retail jobs up to white collar jobs, unless you're doing something that is incredibly in demand. I just, I, 
I, and I'm asking right. this like, question. Unless you're an engineer in Silicon Valley. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I do think um, that they do, that there is a sense of wanting to retain good workers. Certainly there's in the tech world, there's that sense of engineers. And I do find in my own daily life, in a way that maybe was not true five, 10 years ago, uh, valuing, not valuing enough monetarily, but valuing the work that people do, mm-hmm. um, and that it's hard to replace people. I see younger white collar workers demanding more rights, you know, unionization and uh, those kinds of efforts, things that I would have thought unthinkable 10 years ago at a think tank Mm -hmm. or a public policy organization or something. And they are speaking up and demanding it. And I think it is because of the exhaustion. I mean, I think it is because they realize you know, whereas I would never have had the nerve to do that. Yeah, well, and I think um, a lot of it, what people are demanding are pretty straightforward non-exploitation clauses, right? Like, so it's things like right. severance, due costs for getting fired, like, especially what I'm seeing in terms of media unions. Right. My next book project with my partner, Charlie Wurzel, is on... Uh, the future of working from home. So I've been doing so much reading on like the office and the history of white collar workers and different s- strategies that white collar workers have had towards work. And one of the things that's so striking is that there was this real resistance amongst white collar workers to unionize in the 50s, 60s, 70s. You know, there were attempts because this is the height of union efforts in the United oh, States, okay. you know, mm-hmm. like at all like. Yep. Unions were so robust, so strong, but it was mostly within the trades, within what we think of now as things like auto work, teachers, like there there are some places where that it crossed over into different places, but they couldn't cross over into the office. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that office workers were like, I get paid fine, right? And they were like, mm-hmm. I'm fine, you know, like I, I have a pension and I'm also trying to always... I want to beat other people, right? I want to climb the ladder and I want to eventually get up into this place of management. And so I have no use for solidarity. I'm competing with all of these people. Oh, I see. And so I think what you see now amongst office workers, and you see this everywhere from, you know, the campaign unions, the media unions, and also the beginnings of unionization efforts, even in Silicon Valley, is that people, I think, are feeling this burnout and are feeling this exploitation. And they're like, is it worth... The potential of someday maybe having a slightly different job title and more money if I feel like crap all the time, right? Like I and I think like some right. like people want stability. They want some sort of future plan because increasingly, like most millennials I know are convinced that they're gonna have to work until they die. And they want some sort of understanding or some attempt to gesture towards not having to work all the time in order to keep your job. So how can you do that instead of relying on the individual? We've tried relying on individuals and their attempts to to carve out these spaces for a long time. It's not working. Everyone looks around and is like, this hasn't worked. And I think every person, every millennial, they are on a slightly different timeline to when they hit that moment of realization. But I think now what does seem like a different strategy is a union and you see that both in terms like in these more quote-unquote white-collar unions but also in renewed unionization efforts in retail positions at fast food restaurants amongst hotel workers you know like some of those places Mm -hmm. are already unionized but other places are are trying to do it anew 
Even just hearing you talk about it, Anne, I really feel like change is coming. I hope. <laughs> change is happening. <laughs> because, well, also, millennials are going to become managers. And the, you know, the marketplace, whether that's the marketplace of employment or the actual marketplace, will bend to that kind of pressure and that I think change. it depends on if the millennial has, like, internalized this idea, which I do see sometimes. And you can see, actually, in the student loan forgiveness discourse is, like, yeah, I had to go through this, so you have to go through this. Right. I paid my Mm $50,000. Why are they going to, are they going to accept if the person that just graduated gets theirs forgiven? And it's very unnerving for people to to accept that, like, well, the workplace has changed or your mom doesn't work anymore. Or, you know, you talked about earlier about the American dream that, you know, the American dream never rewarded hard work from people of color, never Mm -hmm. rewarded hard work from women the same way it did for white men. And now it is, you know, just I, I feel like everything that was sort of contained and you understood how it operated is now just a blob. And that blob can eat up all of your time, whether you're particularly during COVID, whether you're working from home. But, you know, sap any sense of possibility because you can't quite trace your path to where you would get out of this sort of morass. Yeah. Well, and this is, I think, why something like Universal basic income is so appealing to many millennials because what it provides is a basement of stability from which you can build other things, right? Like you can imagine things yeah. like, oh, I could get job training to do the job I actually want to do, right? Or same thing with, with Medicare for all or with healthcare for all is if you are not wed to a job that you hate and that exploits you because you mm-hmm. need medical care, there's so many things you can do. You have so much more power as a worker and so it makes sense that corporations don't want to don't want to root for that because they want to have more power over the worker. But if a millennial is just so sick of this and feels so so trapped by that feeling of like I have no options because I am so tethered to this job because I just need freaking healthcare for my family. Right. It's really frustrating. One thing that you wrote about that like so I think would be really helpful for women to hear is that you made a conscious decision to not have children. You know, you changed your location and your career to avoid burnout, but you know, you sort of had to reframe your life. Was having children something that you had thought you might do and then decided um, and decided it just didn't work? So or I think that it. I'm really strongly shaped by the time that I was a nanny. Uh, I was a full-time, oh. not live-in nanny, but I was a full-time nanny for two infants uh, right after college. And it just became very clear for that for me during that time, how much time infants take, how much time kids take, and mm-hmm. how absorbing mm-hmm. they are. And, you know, and I wasn't even their mother, right? Like, I was their nanny. I was their caretaker. I, I was yeah. able to easily establish boundaries in some ways. Like, all I was doing was, you must take a nap at this time, you know, like I was regimenting in that way. And I just knew that the things that people say are possible for women to do while they're taking care of children, like, just write your dissertation while you have an infant, I knew that that wouldn't be possible for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, right. You had a more realistic expectation yeah. about because I I talked to I interviewed Connie Britton for the podcast a few weeks ago, and she adopted a boy mm-hmm. on her own. And I was like, "What gave you the courage to do?" And she's like, yep. "Ignorance." Honestly, she's like, "I would do it again," but uh, she said, "You know, he's the most important thing to me. You know, all the things that mothers say." But she was like, "But just ignorance, just like yep. stupidity." Just didn't understand yep. how hard it was yes. going to be, particularly on your yep. own. But you knew. 
And I think that because I was in grad school and, and a lot of my friends had kids before me, I saw what was going on in their relationships, in like feminist relationships, right? Like just what happens with the division of labor, just like even in the most well-intentioned scenarios, what happens? And then just lots of reading, right? Like I I have a degree in media studies, but I took a whole lot of feminist sociological classes. Like it just became incredibly clear to me how difficult it is. And not even just financially, but also just when it comes to... The fact that we live in a society that is still really set up to function as if every family has someone who doesn't work in their home. A lot of my friends that are raising young children, it's just like, this is, you all got screwed. Mm-hmm. You just got sandwiched in the worst possible yep. time. It's like, you know, after the time that women stayed home, but well before the time that we figured out how you make yep. this work. Absolutely. And so all of these exacting standards, I just, I didn't want to deal with it. I just didn't want to be mad all the time. And I know that people make it work. <sighs> Oof. <laughs> but I just, I knew yeah. that I would resent it a lot. And I wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily mean resenting the kid. I would resent the scenario. And so, you know, my partner and I had just had a lot of co- honest conversations about that. And, like, I am a very important person in a lot of kids' lives. Uh and that is important mm-hmm. to me. And I love kids. Like, again, I was a nanny. <laughs> I can put your baby right. to sleep. Any baby, I can life. put that baby to sleep. <laughs> but I don't necessarily feel sad for myself that I don't have kids. I feel sad for our society that it is so difficult to to manage everything right now. Yeah. You have um, – I just felt like it was so great the way you end the book, acknowledging that the reader isn't meant to fix society or themselves. It's just – to provide context into how people see themselves um, in the world and around them. You know, I feel sort of the same way about the books that I write. It's, I don't want women to be discouraged when I tell you this is why it's harder for women. I want you to be inspired that all the hard work that you've put in means you can do so much more. And this is what makes me hopeful is you're writing this, you're putting this out in the world. You had the 8 million people that that was just the piece you wrote for BuzzFeed, right? And that doesn't happen in a vacuum, you know, like these things don't stay in a silo and it's going to spur more thought and more discussion. And I do believe we're actually going to solve problems. You have a hard out, but I need to know the three top bars in Montana. (laughs) Well, this is very controversial. I would say, what I want to say is that the best place to get a burger, like just a crappy, simple burger, is the Mo Club. And it is such an experience. I miss it so much. Just just thinking about it right now, I miss, there's an incredible ice cream place in Missoula that is just like, you walk there from the river. It's so amazing. Yes. The Big Dipper. Ugh. I know. And and I miss I our tiny little indie theater that is independently run and is so scrappy. And I just, you know, I just miss culture. But I, I think all of that's going to come back. It is. It is. <laughs> Jester's. Jester's is my favorite bar in Montana. Helena. Oh, that is a really good bar. It's a really good bar. Yeah. Yeah. But the Mo Club is fantastic for burgers. Yeah. Thank you Thank so you. much. This was this fantastic. Is so good. This turned my day around. We'll have a, we'll have a burger at the Mo Club. <laughs> Sari. You there? I am. So Well, what'd you think? Well, first of all, I'm like embarrassed to say this, but I just what? took some time off 
the past couple of days. And I felt so guilty about it. And that, in a way, made me feel a little better, I think. Just yeah. being like, I, we all deserve that. And why, why did I feel guilty to, you know, take a few days off? And I don't know. I know I can't fix the problem, as she said, but... It was helpful. It definitely helped. <laughs> well, and it's like, and then you resent that you feel bad about taking the time right. off, which is also like also not useful. But I, I mm, feel like good. the pandemic has made me oscillate between feeling like I need to take more time for myself. Like I should feel yep. good about that, but also I'm always next to my computer, so I can be working triple. I can work from anywhere, yeah. and it's accepted to work from anywhere. So it's a real, it's a real problem. Um, I came away being feeling hopeful about after talking to her just because, you know, she's a pretty singular person and she did this one piece of work that really targets this problem, but these things don't happen in isolation, right? So it's like she's turning over all of these problems. There are all sorts of economists that are fussing with these problems. There's activists that are fussing with these problems. Uh And then there's just people in their own lives realizing I am killing myself and it's never going to end and having their own realizations. And I think that change never happens as quickly as you want it to, but I do feel like change is going to come. It did feel kind of hopeful to me that at least this conversation is at the forefront. Yeah. And that millennials have like a bad rap about, you know, whining and being entitled. And I think really it's that they're more, what I find interesting is they're just more aware than I as a Gen Xer do you feel it does give me sympathy and empathy for millennials to be the ones that are sort of stuck right at the, you know, I think that probably the valley of this problem, right. it'll come, go, it'll improve, but they're the ones that are sort of living with all of the stresses of, you know, working under the same sort of set of expectations in an economy that's entire, that's totally changed, but the rules haven't kept up with it. Yeah, I'm super interested to see what work life looks like once the pandemic is over. Sleeping in the office has to end. Oh my God, right? That's totally what it is. My bedroom doubles as my office and it's just not a sustainable (laughs) model. It's not good. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Anne Helen Peterson for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the pod and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Allie Rogers is our associate producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer. 